to baptize you. You need to baptize me. What is John the Baptist saying? Jesus is sinless. Jesus is special. Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, by the way, in John chapter 1, verse 32, you remember what John the Baptist says when he says Jesus? Behold, look, the Lamb of who? God, who takes away what? The sin of the world. And later on in that verse, or two verses later, he says, Jesus, you know what? He's the Son of God. Again, he accurately identifies who Jesus is. In Luke chapter 3, John says this, I baptize you, this crowd, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. There's somebody that's behind me. There's somebody that's coming after me. He's stronger. He's mightier. He's greater than me. And by the way, this one, he's going to judge the earth. He's going to judge sin. How do we know that? Because of this language in John or Luke 3, verse 17. He, referring to Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That is language that refers to judging the people because of their sin. And so John accurately identifies Jesus as the Christ. It's amazing that John sees Jesus identifies Jesus accurately now because he challenged Herod and said, Herod, your marriage is unlawful and ungodly. Now he's in this cold, dark dungeon. And now he asks the question, are you the Christ? Are you the one who was promised in the Old Testament? Or shall we look for another? He's suffering in jail. From a Jewish perspective, the promised Old Testament Messiah was to do two things. He was to heal God's people of their physical infirmities. We see the miracles of Jesus, so he's doing that. But also, he's to redeem God's people from oppression. What type of oppression? Oppression from the government who's in power at that time, the Roman government. But also... The promised Old Testament Messiah is to judge the unrighteous for their sin. And many times the unrighteous in context refers to those who are Gentiles, those who are outside the Jewish community, hence the Roman government. So the promised Old Testament Messiah was supposed to do all these things. And yet John the Baptist, all he hears about is healings. Miracles of mercy to the outcast, to the poor, the downtrodden. He has not heard that the Roman government has been overthrown. He has not heard that God's people are liberated. All he hears about is miracles. As you know, several months ago, the military sent me out to what's called PNC. It's called Professional Naval Chaplaincy. And what they do is they put you in a box called a called a classroom and there's 30 other people in this classroom from a variety of faiths right and what they like to teach you or teach me is that we're all the same we all are God's people and we're all going to heaven it's just a different route well as a biblical Christian I disagree with that statement wholeheartedly and so there was a man that I met by the name of Reuben. I actually called him Rambo Reuben. Rambo Reuben. I just dated myself, right? But Rambo Reuben is a very conservative Jew. When he wakes up, he has certain rituals. When he goes to bed, he has certain rituals. Before he touches his food, he has certain rituals. He's a very conservative Jew. And so the instructor of the class would say, what would you do with this problem ethically? So he would present the problem, and everybody would give their ideas, which is nothing more than secular psychiatry, nothing that can help the soul. And Rambo Rubin would stand up, and he would say, the people need God. That's what the people need. 
And all the fellow chaplains would look at Mr. Weirdo, the conservative Jew, with disdain. His, their body language, their secret m- remarks under their lips, they would, they would denigrate Rambo Rubin. And once I figured that out, I stood up in class and I tried to affirm him because he believes in the Old Testament. Guess what? I believe in the Old Testament. His problem is he doesn't believe in the New Testament. So I would affirm Rambo Rubin in public. I say, you know what? Rambo Rubin is right. The people need God. And then you fast forward. We're in the field. I'm eating dinner by myself. I'm eating this cold, nasty MRE, but it's the only way I can get calories into my body. I'm eating dinner by myself on a cold night, and then Rambo Rubin comes up to my left, and he's sitting right here. And he pulls out his Hebrew Bible, and he says, Chaps, can we talk about Jesus from the Bible? I'm like, is the Pope Catholic? (laughs) Well, we don't really know anymore based on his recent decisions. But I said, sure, let's talk about Jesus. And so we went back and forth, back and forth. He asked me, what do you think about this verse from the Old Testament? What do you think about that verse? I said, all leads to Jesus. But he came back with this statement, and here's the point. He said, the reason I don't believe Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah nor is he the Christ, is because if he truly was the Messiah, he would have liberated my people and we would have no more struggles on this earth. In other words, he's saying God would have judged the people who are in power oppressing my people and my people would go free. That's exactly what's happening right here with John the Baptist. He's doubting the identity of Jesus. Why? Because he hasn't healed, redeemed, and crushed the enemy. From a Jewish perspective, all of that is supposed to happen at the same time. So there's a disconnect. There's mercy, but there's no judgment. So it's the same idea with John the Baptist. He doubts. After he correctly correctly identifies Jesus. Is Jesus the one mentioned in the royal messianic figure in Psalms, which says, Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that Jesus? The obvious answer is yes. And so John sends his two disciples to Jesus. They ask him this question because it's time. And then we get into point number one here in verse 21. Jesus' ministry is proof positive. He fulfills Old Testament promises. Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses 21 to 23. But what's interesting here is this. When they pose that question to Jesus... Jesus doesn't give them an answer right away. Have you ever noticed in Jesus' earthly ministry, when people ask him a direct question, Jesus is under no obligation to give them a direct answer right away. I love Jesus. Did I ever tell you I love Jesus? I love Jesus. That's like taking the microphone and just dropping it in front of the whole crowd and stage left, right? So he doesn't answer the question immediately. Instead, he teaches them a lesson with their own eyes. In that hour, Jesus healed the blind. In that hour, he healed that sick, the sick. In that hour, those who were demon-possessed were relieved of their demon possession. His focus was on those who are in need. Jesus taught them a lesson in compassion. His focus was on the outcasts. And then Jesus lists six miracles, and he tells the disciples, you go tell John the Baptist what just happened. He said, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, 
and the poor have good news reached out to them. Can you imagine somebody who's been blind for many, many years goes to Jesus, or actually Jesus goes to them, heals their eyes, and they open their eyes for the very first time in their life, and they see this big, beautiful sky over Israel for the first time in their lives. Or can you imagine a lame person who's always been asking for help? Can you please pick me up and carry me to the grocery store? Or can you please pick me up and carry me to the synagogue? And now all of a sudden, the people who know who the person who's been lame for many, many years is now instantly healed, and he's no longer asking people for help. Can you imagine that? The one who was an outcast, because if you had leprosy, you were outside of the culture, you were outside of the society, you were outside of your family, you had to be separated from people, and now all of a sudden, he gets to attend worship at the synagogue. Can you imagine the deaf? One who can see, but one who cannot hear. And all of a sudden, his ears are instantly open because of Jesus' compassion upon those who cannot help themselves. And for the first time, the deaf people can hear the beautiful voices of their little children and grandchildren and neighbors and spouses. Can you imagine that? And then Jesus heals the dead by raising them to life. Who can do that? Only God in Christ can do that. There's no more mourning. I'm sure most of us have attended a funeral at some point in our lives. Some of the most painful funerals I've ever attended in my life are funerals for those who are non-believers. But there's now no more mourning. There's now no more crying, but there's joy because the life giver is present. And so what do we see here with all these miracles? Yes, it's to prove that Jesus is to Christ. Yes, it's to prove that if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that by believing you may have eternal life. But it's also showing that Jesus is reversing the curse of sin. To be blind, to be a leper, to be dead, to be demon-possessed, and I could go on and on and on, is a result of sin. And God, in love and kindness and compassion, gives His one and only Son, who is now reversing the curse of sin. And we see that in one of the greatest miracles, raising the dead to life. And so what is Jesus implying here? Jesus is implying, if you see these miracles, you should know what time it is. The Messiah is amongst you, and I am he. So these mercy miracles are proof positive that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. We see these Old Testament promises in Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Who does that sound like? Or Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Or Isaiah 29, 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. How about Isaiah 61, 1? The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Who does that sound like? The only person 
that can do that and fulfill all those promises and prophecies is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus is confirming his identity, that he is the promised Messiah. So what can we learn from this first section? One of the things we can learn is you can have physical eyes and not see. You can have physical ears and not hear. You can claim that you're a Christian, but are you? That does not mean that all these miracles mean that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the Savior. Inwardly, there must be a change of heart. If you're going to believe these miracles and only in the miracles and these miracles don't point to Jesus, then you have a disconnect in your life. Because the point of miracles is not that so you can perform a miracle, is that it points you to Jesus. The question is, have you been inwardly changed at the very core of who you are? Has your heart been changed to believe unto Jesus for salvation? See, one of the challenges that we face, one of the challenges that we face is this, as Christians. It's easy to say, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and then difficulty comes our way. We may not be thrown into a physical jail, not yet at least, but many people have physical diseases and sicknesses. Many people have financial problems. Many people have marital problems. Many people have problems with their family and their children and their grandchildren. I could go on and on and on. But our difficulties in life should not be the lens of how we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus through his word, not our feelings, not our emotions, not our opinions. We look at Jesus through his word. So maybe you're not a Christian and you're wondering, what's all this mumbo jumbo about Christianity, about believing in Jesus, turning away from sin? You may have heard about Jesus, but you don't really know who Jesus is. You don't know what Jesus has done for sinners. You don't know what it takes to be a Christian. And so my encouragement for you is this. You need a new heart. When you get a new heart, you get new eyes. When you get a new heart, you get new ears. When you get a new heart, you get a new life. And I can't give you that. And none of the pastors can give you that. Only the Lord can give you a new heart. And so what do you need to do? You need to fall upon God's grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fall upon him, embrace him, hold him, and never let him go. That's what you need. You need Jesus the Christ. And so as it stands right now, you have an appointment with God that you cannot reschedule. You cannot avoid you can do whatever you want to do to try to avoid this appointment with God, but at the end of your life, you still have an appointment with God. And I'm afraid for you. Because apart from Christ, you are facing God's holy wrath. And it's good for God to judge. You're like, whoa, that doesn't sound right, Pastor Roll. That doesn't sound very loving. No, it's good for God to judge. Like it's good for God, or I should say it's like it's good for a judge to judge a murderer on our streets. You want to see that which is broken fixed. You want to see sin punished. And that includes those who break God's law. So what you need right now is a new heart. And God is merciful. God is merciful. And if he ever changes your heart, you'll be changed forever. You know, one of the biggest mistakes that Christians can make is this, is that we think that God owes us an answer. God, you owe me an answer by next week at 3 o'clock. 
Now, that's one of the biggest mistakes you could ever make in your life, thinking that God owes you an answer. Because what you're doing in that moment is you're using your own wisdom to try to manipulate God. And God will not be manipulated. So I want to encourage you, dear Christians, who are going through very great trials, tribulations, and struggles, don't look at Jesus through your struggle. Look to Jesus through the Word of God. God loves and cares for His people. That's a biblical fact in reality. How do we know that? Has He given you Jesus? If He's given you Jesus, then that's proof that the Lord loves you and cares for you. I hope you don't ever forget that. In verse 23, Jesus says this, Blessed is the one who does not or is not offended by me. Another way to say this is, blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So how is Jesus ministering at this point? It's not judgment, but mercy and compassion. And then Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended at my ministry. You know, Jesus will save his people. That's a promise. And Jesus has saved his people. That's a fact. And Jesus will save his people in the future. That's another fact and promise. But the way that Jesus saves his people is where the rubber meets the road. That's the point of contention. Because the religious zealots of the day do not like the way that Jesus is doing his ministry. But we need to understand there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day of judgment coming. And it's good for the good and perfect God to judge. But God will do it on his own time frame, not our time frame. His time frame, not our time frame. There is a difference between man's salvation implemented on man's time frame versus God's salvation implemented on God's time. There's a huge difference there. And so for now, God is merciful to sinners. How do I know that God is merciful to sinners? Is because many of us in this room are not Christians and you're still alive. And many of us in this room are Christians and we praise God for his mercy. So point one, Jesus' ministry is proof positive that he fulfills Old Testament promises. I want to spend a little bit of time here on point number two, starting at verse 24. Verse 24. And this is about the rejection of both Jesus and John's ministry by the religious professionals. I want to read this. And if you have a copy of God's word there, please read with me in verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge or dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, 
a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So after the two messengers of John the Baptist leave Jesus, Jesus now makes a decision to address this general crowd of people before him. And in this general crowd of people are the Pharisees and the experts of the law. And he asks these questions. What did you go out into the wilderness or desert to see? In other words, what would motivate you to leave the city, to leave the temple where we worship, to go all the way to the desert to see John the Baptist? What would motivate you to go out there? Is it a reed shaken by the wind? In other words, a reed can be translated as a tall piece of growing grass or a tall wooden hollow piece of material. And so that's the idea. It's the tall, woody, hollow stem. In Greek literature, to be labeled as a reed means that you're weak and frail. But John is, or Jesus is not saying that John the Baptist, him and his ministry is weak and frail. He's just making a comparison here. What is motivating you to come out all the way to the desert? Are you coming here to see a weak and frail man? Are you coming here to see somebody who's unimportant or insignificant or irrelevant? What would motivate you to come all the way to the desert? Did you want to see a man dressed in soft clothing? In other words, a man dressed in soft clothing is a man who lives in the lap of luxury. He is a person who belongs in cities of luxury or in areas of opulence. And those people are normally located in the king's courts. In the king's courts. Jesus is saying, does that apply to John the Baptist? And the obvious answer is no. That doesn't apply to John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is described as a little bit of a, a wild man. He's described as a man who wore a garment of camel's hair. I've only seen camels. I've never touched a camel. I've never ridden on a camel. I've never wore a garment of camel's hair. I would assume that it's comfortable, but a part of me thinks it's not comfortable. But that's John the Baptist. He's wearing a garment of camel's hair. He's also wearing a belt of leather. He eats something very interesting. He eats locusts and honey. That is the original, original organic diet. <laughs> Who eats that stuff? John the Baptist, the wild man that comes from God. That's who eats that stuff. And so Jesus now sets up this whole scene where he's about to reveal the real reason why these people would leave these cities of luxury and opulence to come all the way to the wilderness, all the way to the desert to see this insignificant, supposedly, man. Referring to John the Baptist in verse 26. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Did you go out to see a prophet? A prophet is a person who represents God to the people. A prophet is one who's been commissioned by God to deliver a message to the people, that the people are to do X. As a matter of fact, a prophet is to call God's people to obedience. He delivers the message and he says, now obey. And if you don't obey, God's curses will be upon you. So a prophet is the one who delivers the message and calls God's people to action and obedience. So the crowd came to hear John, not simply as a wild man, but as a prophet that comes from God. That's why they came out. They've heard a message about John, his message of repent, for the kingdom of 
heaven is at hand. It's a message of repentance. You know, John's message was not very popular. Neither is it popular today. When you tell people, you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins. You need to have a godly sorrow for your sins. That's not a popular message, but that message in and of itself is what drew the people into the wilderness. To see who this John the Baptist is and to hear his message. So, yes, Jesus says John is a prophet. As a matter of fact, he's more than a prophet. Actually, he's the greatest prophet in the role of the Old Testament prophets. He's the greatest prophet out of that whole office of the Old Testament prophet. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, born of women is just saying these are men who are in the prophetic role, who serve God's purposes, and none of them is greater than John. So Jesus is saying, out of all the prophets, if you can line all of them up, Isaiah, Jeremiah, if you line them all up, John the Baptist is the greatest out of all of them. And John's prophetic role was announced in Malachi 3.1, and it says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In the ancient Near East, to use the language of prepare the way, prepare the way means that there's a herald or a messenger that goes before the visiting king and he tells the people, the king is coming, the king is coming. Be prepared, be ready. That's what a messenger or a herald would do. He's preparing the people. He's removing all the hindrances. So if the road, as the Bible says, if the road is crooked, the forerunner says, make it straight. If there's a mountain or a hill in the way, the Bible uses the language of making it flat. Anything that's an obstacle is to be removed and to be prepared for the king that is about to visit his people. So John the Baptist is a forerunner. That's his job, is to point the people, to get the people ready, to guide the people for the one that is coming after him. That's Jesus. And so now, Jesus does something very interesting in our text. He makes a comparison between the Old Testament prophetic office, that role, and he compares it to the kingdom of God. And there's something very important here that Jesus is mentioning. He says in verse 28, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Yet he, or I should say, yet the, anyone who is lesser, may be a better way to say it, anyone who is lesser in the kingdom of God is greater than John. He's saying that the least, there's two categories. The least in the kingdom of God, the one who's in the kingdom of God, whoever's labeled and ranked as the least, is greater than John the Baptist, the greatest Old Testament prophet. There's something that Jesus is saying here that's very, very important. See, John the Baptist never gets the privilege to see uh, Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because he's already dead. His head has been separated from his body at the Macheris prison. It's put, in on a, it's put on a platter and given to Herodias' daughter. And so if we understand the new covenant, the new covenant that God has provided is better than the old covenant. Because in the new covenant, to be part of God's people, to be forgiven, to be in the kingdom of God is strictly based on the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the only way to get into the kingdom is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
And so John the Baptist never gets an opportunity to see the resurrection of Christ. But it's important that those who come after John the Baptist, here's the, here's the point, here's the point. Those who come to Christ after the ministry of John the Baptist have more revelation, more divine revelation. They see Jesus as who he truly is, and they can appreciate Jesus' ministry, the Savior who lived and died for sinners. That's the point. There's a shift in time that's happening right now. In redemptive history, there was a need for the prophets in the Old Testament to represent God to the people and say, God says this, you are called to obey. Now there's a transition in time where Jesus is now on the scene. And there's no longer a need for prophets. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophetic office. In other words, the people say, God is coming. And Jesus says, I am God. So the forgiveness of God is through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John the Baptist, what, what's happening is that Old Testament office is fading away. And this New Testament era is being ushered in by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening. There's no more need for an Old Testament prophet. That doesn't mean that John's ministry was null and void. No, John the Baptist had a very serious role in redemptive history. He's the forerunner telling people, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Christ is here. Look to Christ. So, we praise God for what we see in the Word of God regarding that ministry. And so in that sense, those who are, in the, who are considered least in the kingdom of God are greater than the Old Testament prophet because they can appreciate the work of Jesus Christ. There's a contrast between the old and the new. So when we think about the kingdom of God, what comes to mind? Do you think of heaven or do you think of Disneyland? What comes to mind when the Bible uses the language, the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God, that is a major theme throughout the entire Bible. And Jesus proclaims that this kingdom of God is here. It's here. The kingdom of God is very real. The kingdom of God is a real realm in which Jesus rules and reigns now. And those who belong to Jesus belong in the kingdom. Those who belong to Jesus belong to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God exists right now. A lot of people have the opinion that the kingdom of God is strictly future. I want to challenge you. It's not strictly future. The kingdom of God is now. When Jesus left the glories of heaven to breathe the dust of earth, to be put on a cross, to be buried and raised again, as the scriptures say on the third day, the kingdom of God had intervened and invaded the kingdom of this world in the incarnation and the person work of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God came into this world through Jesus. So don't think for a second that the kingdom of God is strictly in the future. The kingdom of God came when Jesus was here. The kingdom of God is now. And the kingdom of God will be fully consummated in the future. Let me explain it like this. I took my two boys, Elijah and Malachi, and they should be in this room. Praise God, they're in this room. <laughs> and I told my two boys, boys, I'm going to teach you how to use an airport. Why? Because in a couple of months, you guys have to fly by yourselves with no parental supervision. I know I was praying a lot before this happened. And I said, I got to teach you how an airport works so that you can navigate through the airport and get on the right plane at the right time. And so my boys were excited. We had our ticket. We had our seats. We're ready to go. It's as good as done. 
The only difference is we haven't departed yet. Do you understand? We've got the ticket. We've got the seat. The plane is coming. We're going to get on this plane and we're going to depart. It's just a matter of time. That's what it means when the kingdom of God is here now, but it's fully consummated in the future. It's the idea of the already and not yet. God's kingdom is already here, but it's not yet fully consummated until the future. So, I hope we understand that. When Jesus came into the sinful world, the kingdom of God is present. He healed all sorts of diseases and disabilities. What does that show? The kingdom of God is present. When Jesus raised the widow's son from death to life, the kingdom of God was present. Why? Because the king of the kingdom is present. Jesus. And Jesus, King Jesus, is reversing the curse of sin. So it exists then, exists now, and it'll be fully consummated in the future. The question before us today is this. How does someone get into the kingdom? Have you ever thought about that? How does one get into the kingdom? Do you get into the kingdom based on race? Based on ethnicity? Based on nationality? Based on growing up and being born in a good Christian home with a good Christian family? With the Bible as the centerpiece of the living room that has 20 years of dust because it's never been opened? It's through faith and belief in the true king, King Jesus. That's how it happens. A member of the kingdom of God is a true child of God. I want that to sink in just for a second. A member of the kingdom of God is a true child of God. And a true child of God has the Holy Spirit. In other words, they've been born again. They've been regenerated. You don't have to twist their arms and drag them into church. Because they got a changed heart, guess what? They have a natural desire to see God, to hear his word and be with God's people. You don't have to beg people. Those who are born again, they sit in these pews. They want to hear the word of God. They're not interested in movies and the things of this world. A true child of God bears the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So members of the kingdom of God who have turned away from their sins and placed their faith in Christ are born again and they are in the kingdom of God. I want to I wanna have you think about this for a second. To be a member of the kingdom of God and not be a member of Christ's local, physical, visible body called the church is unbiblical. To say, I'm a member of the kingdom of God and not be part of a local physical church on earth is unbiblical. I could spend an hour just on that topic alone. God never saved his people so they could be Lone Ranger, independent Christians doing whatever they want to do, roaming the earth. In the New Testament, all the biblical authors who wrote to churches wrote to a specific group, Christians at Ephesus, Christians at Galatia, Christians at Rome, Christians at Corinth. So Christians are instructed to gather together in submission to pastors as long as they follow the word of God. As soon as I violate the word of God intentionally, unwilling to repent, don't follow any of us. Don't follow any of us. At that point, you fire us. So what does it mean to be part of a church? What does the word church mean? 
The word in its biblical context originally defined is ecclesia. Those are people who are the called out ones. They are called out from darkness and into light. These are the ones who go from being condemned by their sins, facing God's judgment, to being forgiven and loved by God. These are the people who were below, born from below, to now born from above. These are the people who go from the children of Satan to the children of God. There's no three, there's no three categories. There's not a third category. There are only two categories. Either you're in the family of God or you're in the family of Satan. There is no third family. These are the people who go from trusting themselves to trusting the Lord. So when the Bible uses the word church, the Bible is saying this refers to God's people called the elect. The elect. On a Sunday morning, this is called the general church. Because why? There are people here who are Christians and non-Christians. The general Sunday church. But when we use the word church, we are saying something very specific. The called out ones. The elect. Those who are born again. Those who went from being condemned to those who are alive in Christ and forgiven. As I wrap up here, how does the crowd react to Jesus' ministry and John's ministry? All the people and the tax collectors, they all declared God just. They were baptized by John the Baptist. To say that they justify God doesn't mean that God needed to be forgiven. We're not talking about sin. But we're talking about God's wisdom is justified, valid, and it applies. Who is the epitome of God's wisdom? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the epitome of God's wisdom. So those who hear the good news of Christ by God's grace and they respond, they're justified. And who are the people who are justified in our text? These are the people that the world considers lowly, outcast, downtrodden. These are the people that even should never, they should never even have the gospel. Because why? They're lowly, insignificant people, and yet God gives the gospel to these people, and yet they respond with joy. It's amazing that those who are lowly in the world have more spiritual insight than the religious professionals. So they believe in John's message. They believe that Jesus is the Christ. And yet there's always this group there's always a group out there throughout church history, throughout human history, even in through redemptive history, there's always a group of people that reject God's truth and God's word and God's message. In particular, the Pharisees and the lawyers. They have spiritual unbelief. They don't trust what Jesus is saying. They don't trust his identity. And so Jesus challenges the institution, the establishment, and he says this. He refers to this generation as children. Not this generation, including Jesus and John. Jesus and John are separated from this generation. But he refers to this generation as children. And he's using an analogy, and he says there's two things that this generation are like. They play the flute, and they sing a funeral song. Remember, it says, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. In other words, Jesus, how come you don't play by our rules? We played the flute. If you hear music, you're supposed to dance. How come you're not doing ministry the way we want? Oh, by the way, we sang a song, a dirge, a lament song at a funeral. And when you hear this lament song, you're supposed to mourn and cry. But you didn't mourn and cry. And what is Jesus saying? I'm not playing your childish games. I'm not playing by your rules. I'm not going to do ministry your way. Jesus saves his people his way. Any other way is childish games. And so Jesus deals with these religious professionals in public. He challenges them. Why? 
because those who are religious professionals will always find an excuse why I don't like this ministry and why I don't like this ministry and why I don't like this ministry. Why? It's because they want a ministry that images them, talks good about them. They pull Jesus off of the throne and they place themselves up in a place of authority and prestige and power. They want ministry according to what they want. And they accuse John of being demon-possessed. Why? Because they don't like his ministry. They think John is not only a wild man, but John is kind of boring. Why? Because they would consider him an ascetic. An ascetic is somebody who is trying to be spiritually mature by denying himself physical pleasures. Right? And so John is really a killjoy. He doesn't show a lot of joy in his face. So they accuse him of being demon-possessed. Why? Because they don't like his ministry. And then they accuse Jesus. They say, well, you're a glutton, Jesus. You're a drunkard. They have no evidence, by the way. But they give this caricature of Jesus being a glutton and a drunkard. Oh, and here's what's worse. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You definitely are not the Messiah, Jesus. Why? Because if Jesus was truly the Messiah, he would know better not to associate himself with the lowly, with tax collectors and sinners. Because when you do, you're defiled. You're defiled. And the real Messiah would never be compassionate and never be merciful to associate with people like that. But we who read the book, we who trust the word of God, know that Jesus is compassionate and merciful. And we praise God for that. And so Jesus, it says here, wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is justified by all her children. It's those who respond positively to God's wisdom in Christ. And because of that, justified. Christ is the wisdom of God. Some of you have heard of John G. Patton, the missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. He went to this island, but before he went to this island to be a missionary, he studied theology and medicine for 10 years. And he got a lot of experience before he set sail. And if you don't know where the New Hebrides Islands, if you know where New Zealand is, just go north and you'll see an island called Vanuatu. Vanuatu. And when he arrived on the New Hebrides Islands, this island is completely filled with cannibals, pagans, idol worshipers. And after arriving on this island, three months later, his young wife died. Three months, 90 days after he touched the island, his young wife died. Five weeks later, their infant died. And so John Patton is in his study. He's brokenhearted. His job is to translate the Bible into this savage tribe's language. He has to actually create the language so that he can explain the gospel to them. And so he's in his study one day, and he comes across this words in the original language. It says, pistuo ace. Pistuo ace means believe in or trust in. So he's translating John chapter 1. How do I get trust in Jesus in a language where there's no alphabet? And he's struggling in his study. And then his servant walks in, and he asks his servant, Servant, what am I doing right now? And he's sitting on his chair, and the servant says, You're sitting in your chair. And then all of a sudden, John G. Patton says, He lifts his feet off the ground, while he's sitting in the chair, and he says, Servant, what am I doing now? He says, You're putting your full weight into the chair. And that verb for that language was the verb used to translate John's gospel, to teach the people that they are to believe in Jesus with all of their weight, all of their trust. You know, I want to encourage us as Christians that we need to continue to lean upon Jesus with all of our weight. 
And how do we do that when we struggle with spiritual unbelief? What do we do when we're in trials and tribulations? You need to remember that you're in the kingdom of God if you're a Christian. Right here, right now. You're in a real realm owned by, purchased by the king's blood. And we lean upon Christ by studying his word, meditating his word, and trusting his word. Don't let your personal circumstances determine how you look at Jesus. Trust Christ for who he is and trust his word for it's forever true. That's how you deal with, am I saved or not saved? I'm struggling right now. Jesus, our king, is compassionate and merciful, and that truth is a truth that we can live by. So let's continue to honor Christ by trusting in him and his word. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to be a Christian because why? It's clear from the text that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And we pray that you would be a friend of sinners if you would just turn from your sin and trust in him and him alone. Sermon in a sentence, the cure for spiritual unbelief is believing that Jesus is the Christ and his word is forever true. And all of God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the challenging word that we heard today. We acknowledge before you, O oh God, that many times in our lives we struggle physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, in all sorts of ways, and many times it's self-inflicted. And instead of seeing you as the true, living God who is holy, righteous, and just, merciful and compassionate, we see you through the lens of our pain, and we doubt your identity. Father, forgive us for that. Forgive us. We thank you that you're merciful and compassionate even now. Help us to live as Christians who are in the kingdom, your kingdom, for the glory of your name. All of God's people said, Amen.
bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death, the God of life. 